Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, my guest today is, I think, one of the most interesting people to emerge from the troubles in the North. Richard O'Raw was a member of the IRA. He was in prison in the H blocks. And he was a spokesperson for the hunger strikers during the 1981 hunger strike. Years later, he began to write books. And he fell out with Sinn Féin over claims in his first book that the lives of six hunger strikers could have been saved back in 1981, as I say. He's become an established author since then, and now he has written another potentially very explosive book. Steak Knife's Dirty War is an examination of the activities of leading Republican and the highest level British informer in the provisionals, Freddie Scapatici. In it, Ora digs deep into the background of the intelligence war during the Troubles, in which I have to say, it looks to me anyway like that both the upper echelons of the IRA and the British security services treated what you might call the little people as pawns in their game, with a complete disregard for the lives of so many. In the book he also examines whether other high-profile Republicans, and particularly Martin McGuinness, were also working for the British state. You're very welcome to the podcast. So, Ricky, when did you first hear that Scapatici had been uncovered as steak knife? I, uh, I remember reading it in the papers um, in around 2003, well, that was the first time that he, he was actually out it. Um, it was in a Sunday, I think that's a Sunday World in the right. North. It was two or three papers had him. And um, and how did I feel about it? Absolutely um, knocked out. It was like Mike Tyson landed one on my chin. You would have known him by reputation. I knew him to talk to. Right. But just uh, no more. He and I had been interned together in 1973, but I was in case three and he was in case four. So we would have had a Hawaii sort of acquaintance and no more than that, thank God. God was very but merciful. Apart, apart from your personal knowledge of him, you would have known within Republican circles that he was somebody who was considered to be pretty high up. Would you have known that he was in the internal security unit, for instance? Yes, I did. Um, but Freddie Scapp was always a senior Republican he was interned on the 9th of August, 1971. He was released again on in March, 1973. And he was out for about six months. But during that six months, he was Brigade O.C. of Belfast. The IRA's Brigade O.C. of Belfast. That's the guy who runs the whole show. You don't get to that position unless you're held in the highest esteem. And, and similarly, the setting up of the security unit, and you go through this in the book in the late 70s, and it was decided this was necessary in terms of some ops operations had gone wrong yeah, and to yeah. find out what had gone wrong, whether there were informers there. Presumably, you'd want to be what you might call someone who's unimpeachable to be, he was second in command, but to be at that level within there. Until Freddie Scapatici was out he was held in the highest esteem in Republican circles. As you say, Mark, absolutely unimpeachable. 
And um, he was also he was also known to be what was called a, a squirrel. A, squ- a squirrel was someone who was involved in intelligence gathering and 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 stuff like that. Uh, so he was perfect for uh, the internal security. And when it was set up, he was actually number two to a guy called George O'McGee, who was an ex-SBS Royal Marine. Right, ex-British Army. Ex-elite. Yeah, elite. Four, yeah, yeah. Uh, Royal British Army. And, and, and Freddie was his number two. And again, he was totally, totally trusted. Absolutely. Trusted to the extent that when the Lockall massacre took place, in 1986. This is just where eight IRA men were shot dead by the SAS when they attacked an RUZ station in Lockall in County Tyrone. That's right. Freddy Scapatici was on the Court of Inquiry, the three-man Court of Inquiry, right, even though he was a British agent. But it, as far as the IRA was concerned, he was a top-class Republican. He was totally... Um, he was, he, as far as the IRA was concerned, he was totally respected and, and not a hint... Now, well, you can't say not a hint. If it will, uh, yeah, and I'll come to that because there are even some other individuals. Uh, you mentioned John John McGee, who would have been nominally anyway, his boss. And there has always been, and I think it's fair to say, credible suspicion that he was an informer as well. Well, I would, I'm not so sure how credible it is. Right. I'm not saying that he wasn't an informer. In fact, I'd say the odds are that he was. But when you're writing a book, you can't, you can't work on... On rumour. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I spoke to people during the writing of this book specifically to find out if John Joe, where's the evidence that John Joe McGee was an informer? And I couldn't find it. Now, right. there may well be evidence out there, Mick, that I don't know about, but I couldn't find it. So I had to say, unless I find evidence that someone's an informer, there isn't. Absolutely. No, I have to say, and it, it always even struck me at the time reading about it, and I suppose that, that, to be honest with you, Ricky, the phenomenon of informers is fascinating when we go all the way back to Lima Flaherty's novel and what have you, and in the Irish psyche and all. But the role of the security unit was to find out whether somebody was an informer, and that involved, more often than not, a form of torture, whether it was physical or psychological, yes. and ultimately shooting them. Yes, and that's always been about. Mark Collins done exactly the same thing. He set up a, a, a nothing squad in, in Dublin for the exact same purpose. So, I mean, it's not as if this is something that the provost thought of. No. It's been, it's been well sort of utilised over the years. Oh, completely, but there's no evidence that in Collins' time, the man who was actually doing it and wheeling out the informer was an informer himself. That's, that's the fascinating a, aspect. That, that's, that's absolute. Collins would have known. But that, yeah, you're, you're totally right. The, the, whole, the whole business of, of, of the, the Nutton Squad, as you say, was the whole rationale behind it was to catch informers. And the thing about it was they didn't care how they caught them. They didn't care. They, you should, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. They physically tortured them. You read in the book, if you've read the book, you've read about Paddy McDade. Yeah. And that, I mean, you wouldn't do that to an animal. That was the man who was brought down to, to Longford. The, the, Charles, the Charlestown in, in Roscommon. Roscommon, excuse me. Yeah, it was the Midlands. Right? Yeah. yeah, in the Midlands. And it cr- crucified. We had made to, to, to go to the toilet and a sleeping bag and sleep in it for three days. I mean, that's, but that was nothing. 
they used him as an and ultimately way. came to the conclusion that he wasn't a, a he wasn't an informer yeah after putting him through only, that only because he didn't admit it had he admitted it even though he wasn't an informer he'd have been shot dead as he said himself I was to be one of the disappeared and not only that they the, the most the most potent interviewer in, in that ASGR Turtle Security Unit was Scapatici himself and Scapatici would have said to a suspect, you have one hour to make your mind up about telling me everything you know about your, about your days as an informer, but I'm not an informer, but I don't really care, you have an hour. And if you don't tell me what's what's going to happen within that hour, you're getting taken down to South Armagh, you're going to get hung upside down from a beam, and you're going to be skinned alive, and you can scream all you want, because nobody will hear you. And as that hour counted down, he said, you have ten minutes, you have five minutes, you have three minutes, you're in your last minute, kiddo. After this evening, if you want to tell me, it's too late. And people broke at that, because that's psychological torture. Of course, yeah. And, and we don't know, here's the thing, Mark, we don't know who was informers and who wasn't. That's the other thing. No, I think I think there's at least two in the book where subsequently the IRA not necessarily issued an apology, but accepted that people who had died were not Informers. Informers. Correct. And they're, they're only two, and in, they're only two that we know of. They're only two that I think their families generally pursued it and ultimately put pressure on them to come back with it. But the spectre that opens up there, uh, Ricky, is that could Scapatici have been targeting individuals saying they were informers at the behest of the British security sources because they wanted individuals out of the way? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a very cogent position to take. Um, the British were always manoeuvring. They they were they were profiling Republicans to see um, where weaknesses were, um, and th- th- they were trying to turn Republicans. They were trying to blackmail them into becoming informers, and they were moving people who were awkward, who weren't, who couldn't be, who couldn't be blackmailed. They were moving them sometimes into into weaker positions so that their guy can come through. They were at all these dirty tricks. And here's the bottom line, Mark, in all of this. The the IRA Army Council thought that they were in control of this process. Their internal security unit picked up a suspect, broke him or her, and got from them a confession, right? Either a tape or a written confession, whereby their guilt could be demonstrated. A member of the IRA Army Council would have came and pronounced sentence. That person would have been taken away and shot. Shot dead. But above them, there was another Army Council called the uh, the Tasking and Coordinating Group. And this was a British Army or a British government uh, umbrella group, which was made up of all the various intelligence agencies. RUC Special Branch, E4A, which is a, a branch of, of the RUC, uh, MI5, Force Reaction Unit. This is Umbrella Group. And Scapatici, here's what you have to remember. Every time Scapatici and his guys find someone guilty, for, by any means, of being an informer, as the minute he got, all, got away from the IRA people, they usually just once they once they broke them, they disappeared, and then the shooters took over. Once he got away, 
on at least 35 times, on at least 35 occasions, he phoned his handler and told him that such and such, right, is going to be shot at the corner of Dunmore Street, for example, tonight at 11 o'clock. Right? He's going to be shot dead. And in doing so, he gave the he gave this the security forces an opportunity to intervene and save that person's life. And on and on, on at least, in my view, Scapatici is the tip of an iceberg. But at least on thirty five occasions, the security forces, the tasking and coordinating group, sat back and let the person be shot dead. That's the, the crucial. So, like you, you have there two categories of people. One those who were not informers at all yep. and Scapatici's handlers wanted them targeted yep. and he complied with that yep. people who were shot as informers and they hadn't been doing that all shot by the, their own people in the IRA and secondly you had people who were informers and Scapatici had given notice to his handlers These, this guy is going to be shot what are you going to do about it? And they alerted as far as the tasking and coordinating group was concerned, the most important priority that they had was keeping Scapatici in place. And if it cost 35 lives, they took the attitude, so be it. Hey, those are 35 people. Yeah, yeah. 35 British and Irish citizens because of dual citizenship. And they let them go. They just said, tough, tough shit. They had to be shot. Yeah. So be it. As long as our intelligence feed keeps coming, because here's the thing about Scabatici, he, the, the, the the internal security wasn't just um, making decisions on who lived and who died, and f- in the nothing squad sense, they were also vetting all new recruits. So Scab would have been sitting in a room with four or five guys, and from South Armagh or from not South Armagh, they didn't trust him, uh, but he'd have been sitting in a in a room. And there had been four or five new recruits, and he's telling them, keep your heads down, don't be going to Republican uh, funerals, don't be going to Republican events, you must keep your head down. And before they even get sworn in, <laughs> the cops know who they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's very important. And they were also debriefing all volunteers coming out of the barracks. Interrog- After they'd been in interrogation centres. Yeah. And they were saying to them, what were you in for? Who was out in the job with you? Right? Who did you mention? Who did they mention to you? So he was he was then getting uh, a, a picture. And this this was all over the north of who was in the ASUs. Yeah. So and he's passing this on to his handlers. So they have an overall picture of where the IRA is. Absolutely, and th- that spectre of effectively the security element of a democratic state playing God by allowing people to be born. That's not at all fancy because there, there's one example, Ricky, here in the Republic of a similar thing happening and that was a man called John Corcoran who was in the IRA in Cork. Yeah. Uh, he was informing in the IRA. He was lured to Kerry. He was shot there and his body left in a field outside Ballancolic in Cork in 1985. Now, subsequently it emerged that a high-level informer, Sean Sean O'Callaghan, initially he told some newspapers he himself had shot Corcoran, Mm. but then he backed off for that. But what seems to have been the case, and they've never gone and got to the bottom of this, but there's definitely a case to be made, that O'Callaghan, as he claimed, had informed his handler that Corcoran was going to be shot. And similar to exactly what you're saying, the attitude was keep the higher-up guy in place 
sacrifice that life. On one level, they're involved in a conflict with the likes of Bridgel area, but it's a chilling thing coming from what's supposed to be a democratic state. Well, the first thing of, 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 of a police force, the first thing of the, the, the forces of the state is the preservation of life. That's the first principle of policing. And here we have, and I'm, I'm aware of this Corcoran thing, because, border uh, because I, I came up during the research for the book, and Sean O'Callaghan as well. Um, but there were no rules. Mark, that's yeah. the bottom line here. There were no rules. You did what you want. The, the, the intelligence, that intelligence unit, that task, task and coordinating group, were all under themselves. They weren't just running Scapatici. They were running loyalists. They were slaughtering Catholics, right? They were up to their hollyhocks and all sorts of perfidious activity. And what do you say then, and you bring this up, Ricky, in the book, to be fair to you, a case, or I, I, presumably this is the case that those in the British security services would make, but can a case be made on their part that ultimately how they handled it, what they did, saved lives, notwithstanding them effectively allowing, as you say, up to possibly three dozen murders to go ahead? Um, no, I don't think a case can be made. I, I, I'm, I'm of the view that they aided and abetted and promoted murder. And that, 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 certainly for a state agency, that is that must be anathema to the ordinary citizen or to anyone. And what in the context of Ricky of saying that they were up against the provisional IRA that were willing to kill anyone to further their aims? Well, I agree. I mean, I actually put this to to one of the IRA guys that I spoke to, and this guy was very active. He he had been involved from a very early age with. Uh, Dominic McGlinchey, Ian Milne, uh, Frank, Frank Hughes, Hughes etc. Yeah. And he was involved in operations, you know, a lot of operations. And I put it to him, and he didn't want to be equated with, he was took, took homerage at the thought of being equated with the SAS. And as much as that both sides ambushed the other, or ambushed their enemy, and, and took no prisoners. And to the extent that's, that, that's good, but... Those who would claim high, the high moral authority are those who are in the employ of the state. And the fact of the matter is that, in my view, for what it's worth, they aided and abetted in the murder of their own citizens. And they must have known, Mick, and you made the point earlier on, that see these 35 people who, and I'm using the term 35, there's talk that it's a lot more, yeah. but I'm using that because they're traceable that those people, a lot of those people had nothing, to, they weren't, not that they had nothing to do with the IRA, but they, were, they, weren't, they weren't informers. And the bigger question is what did it achieve? Yeah. What did killing those 35 people achieve? And I can't, I, you know, I, I don't see any positive answer to that. I don't think it achieved anything. No, well, you could, you could argue the whole conflict didn't achieve anything, but that's... No, no, I don't disagree with yeah, that either. Yeah, but the other thing that comes across very much, I think, Ricky, in the book, is that the attitudes of those within the British security services was not too different from the attitudes in the upper echelons of the IRA, in that 
the little people were expendable. They were putty in their hands. They were pawns to be played around with. In both cases, that's what came across to me. Well, that's exactly the case. And you put it, I mean, I couldn't have put it any more succinctly. The little people didn't matter. They were big players and a bigger plan on both sides. Yeah. And, 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 And whether they lived or whether they died was by the by. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And the other thing, again, going back to the whole issue of informers and, you know, when we use a term like that and we all have the image of the informer and, you know, Chippo an informer Nolan is... Chippo Nolan exactly, the, yep. the, the, going back to all the characters, what have you. But re- what really comes across as well in the book, Ricky, is the dilemma, the fatal dilemma that some people who turned informers find, and two in particular, I noticed. Joe Fenton. Tell me a bit about Joe Fenton. Oh, Joe Fenton. I knew Joe Fenton. You know him personally. Oh, I did. Yeah. I did. He, he, he had a, he had a, he sold houses. He was a estate agent, and he and his business was just literally down the road from where I live. And he was going to, he was going to get me a house at once. But when I just got out of prison in '83, uh, I was brought to him. And he says, "Yes, I'll you pick a house, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of way." And I wasn't even working. He says, I sort of, luckily, I've had all, all that stuff to me. I know how to work the system. I'll make sure you get your mortgage. So, but I didn't, I didn't go with it. For, I don't know what reason. It just it didn't work. But I knew Joe Fan, and he was the most amicable guy. But he got caught by the, that's the same old story. He got caught moving. He was helping out. He was helping the IRA every now and then. He could drive. In those days, wasn't everybody could drive. It's not like now. Yeah. And he was helping the IRA, and he, he moved explosives from A to B, and he was caught. He was brought into the police station, and um, uh, they put it to him, you're going to jail, or else you're going to work for us. That's your choices. So he says, well, I'll work for you. So he went out, and he realised the predicament he was in. So he got his wife and kids, he put in for, for visas to go and live in Australia to get out of it. Of course. He didn't want to be an informer. He didn't want to be in this game at all. So he went to the Australian Embassy and they were letting him in because he had a clean record. There was no evidence that he was involved in anything criminal whatsoever in terms of breaking into houses. He certainly wasn't, uh, he had no evidence of being involved with the IRA. So everything was ready and he was ready to go and next thing the branch Special branch went to the Australians. Says this guy's a terrorist, so they knocked him back. So he and he plans to migrate and start a new life. Went up in smoke, and his, and he was back. And they said, you, you, "Don't you try and be smart with us? You work for us, and you do what you're told." And that's exactly what he did. And he ended up shot dead in a street in Lanadoon. After and, being uh, 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 interrogated. After being interrogated by the Nutton Squad and, and specifically by Scapatici and John Joe. 
he ended up being uh, nutted in a street. Nutted, shot dead. She, she yeah. Shot dead in a street in Lanadin. Uh And it was, I mean, he didn't want to be, a, he, was, he was blackmailed. Yeah, yeah. And he, he wanted, and did that effort to get out. He, just to, okay, well, he tried to, he said, he said to himself, what's my, what's my options here? I can't really live in the north because I can't get away from these from the from the the, the special branch, the security forces, and he, I'm not even sure he was confident he got away from them down here, because they were down here too. You mean oh, they, yeah, these yeah. guys didn't they didn't recognise the border? So he says I'll go to Australia. So he tried to get to Australia to get away from it all, and they wouldn't let him. Dragged them in. They may have forced them to work for them. He was caught, and he was shot dead. Yeah, I mean, I, I I thought that was tragic. What was even more tragic was the case of Caroline Moreland that you also oh. document here. Now, this was after Scapatici had effectively been frozen out because suspicions had arisen after yeah. the case of another man, Sandy Lynch. But yeah. just briefly, tell us about Caroline Moreland. Caroline Moreland was a young mother who lived in Beachmount in West Belfast. And she, she sort of went knocked around with guys from the area, Republican guys from the area. And um, she was actually caught with an armalite in the house. And she was brought in and they said to her, you're, you're going to work for us. And she wasn't trying to resist it. And they says, it's okay, we'll, we'll, we'll charge you and you'll get 15 years in prison. And she thinks of two kids, two or three kids, and your kids will be put into a home and they'll be reared by strangers, and uh, you'll have no way, you'll have no input whatsoever into their lives. And she had cancer as well, I think. And she had cancer as well. I mean, she had, she had she, I'm not too sure what type of cancer, but she certainly had cancer. So, again, blackmail once again, the favourite weapon of Special Branch and, and those like them. So, uh, she, she went to work for them. And she was found out by the IRA, and they took her down to down to the border, and they made they they got a confession out of her. I don't that's what she wasn't beat up, but they they talked her into it, and um, there was and two weeks two weeks later they she was she was convinced she was she was getting off. They were going to let her return to her life, that they understood the pressure etc that she was under. And they took her out and they shot her on the side of her road, shot her dead. Two weeks later, they called a ceasefire. That's, I was coming to that. Two elements that you bring up in this, Ricky. First of all, if I'm correct in the timeline, you suggest that the, the, the issue being caught with the arm light was July 94. And she was actually arrested by the IRA in August 94. So whatever cooperation she did was in that very no, small no. window. And she wasn't, yeah. Well... Uh, I have since heard that her house was being used for Northern Command meetings as well. Right. So she was important. McInnes was meeting Scapatichi, well, not Scapatichi, but he was meeting his adjutant right. in that house. But one way or the other, whatever cooperation she did was over a very, a matter of weeks, it looks like, from the timeline there. Anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And the second thing, and I found this chilling as well, I, I think you suggest that... You know, it might have been, not to be flippant about it, it might have been a toss of whether or not to murder this woman with all the circumstances that were involved in it. But because there was movements towards a ceasefire at the time, on one level it was nearly to send a message to the hard men within the organisation that were not gone soft. 
Well, that's that. That's a theory that Ed Maloney, the journalist Ed Maloney, put forward, and Ed's a. I mean, Ed's a very sharp guy. I mean, as well, yeah, yeah, yeah. journalists go, he doesn't often miss. That's a theory he put forward. His theory was that there was considerable opposition to the prospect of a ceasefire, especially in the likes of East Tyrone and in South Armagh. Belfast, not so much, but certainly in those areas, there was really, they wanted to fight on. They had no, as far as they were concerned, this was, this was a lifetime struggle. So in order to placate them, Ed's view was that they shot, they shot Caroline Murdoch specifically because she was a woman. And as you, and as you point out, basically the message being, Luke, guys, don't, don't think for one second that because we're calling this ceasefire, we're going soft. Luke, what we're capable of. And it was a shocking, shocking murder. And I call it murder because it was murder. It was disgraceful. I it mean, was. there was an announce of fucking, pardon me for cursing, of humanity about it. This lady had three or four kids. And what was her offence? She, she, she was caught with an armalite and was turned once they said they were going to take her kids off her. So mothers will do whatever they have to to protect their, their kids. Absolutely. It, it resonates to some extent with the case of Jim McConville some 22, yeah. three years Absol- earlier. I absolutely. Mean, when, when you write about that in the book, Ricky, you, um, I just see a, just a line you had there in, in terms of your, you're describing Caroline Moreland's killing. You say, nothing crystallises the wickedness of the IRA more than this appalling killing. You, you, you wrote in the book. Yes. Is that how you would describe the IRA? As somebody who yourself, you, you went into it at a very young age, you served a long time in prison for it. Is that how you feel now? Yes, it is. I, I think that, I think the IRA, as the years went on, um, became increasingly desperate and became increasingly uh, inhumane, for want of a better word. I think at the start, in the early 70s, the only people it was the early seventies was like a continuation of the nineteen 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 twenty one war, right? Yeah. Of independence because you had these foreigners on the street in green, British army, shooting back at you, shooting people who who were unarmed. So uh, there was a degree of national sort of um, resistance. I think after, but then that that began to. From 1975 onwards, that began to recede to a point where world sterilization came in and uh, the, 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 the British started all this nefarious business of, of cultivating informers, etc. And I'm not so sure the IRA, the IRA was forced, in my view, to, to, um, to set up something like the Nutton Squad if they wanted to stay viable. And by its very nature, it was the, 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 the degree by which it was a success or a failure was the number of people that it murdered, that it killed, right? Yeah. That it executed. Pick any one of the three you want to use, right? And that was the measure by which they, they were gauged. How many people did they execute? If they executed ten people in a year or whatever it was, well, they were doing their, they were doing a good job. I mean, there's 
people, I got asked the question, funny enough, um, at the launch, a guy who had sort of an insight into the IRA, put it like that, said to me, why did the IRA never rotate the personnel and internal security, which is a basic intelligence sort of format? Yeah. And the only answer I could give is the one I give you, that they were seen to be successful. They were not in touch as far as the leadership was concerned. One other element then that comes into it, Ricky, and you bring up the spectre of the possibility that Martin McGuinness may have been an informer. Now, that has been around and about a while, and I think you quote particularly some IRA personnel who are from Derry who, who, who reference this. But then ultimately you say that the evidence isn't there and he's entitled to the, to the presumption of innocence. I think we even used that yeah. phrase in the book. Some people might say, in that context, is it fair to bring him up as to the possibility that he was an informer? Well, Martin McInnes, I, I think it is. I, I think Martin McInnes was such a prominent man. Done, and uh, in my view, the problem with this is, is that we don't know what the threshold of evidence is, right? And it's, it's, it all behoves me. I, I, I have no, no inclination when I wrote this book to say that Martin McInnes was an informer, right? But what I did do, and I did it, I did it, I, you know, I, I, or not, what I did do with the Franco Haggerty killing was to lay out the facts. And the facts, the facts are very, very damning for McGuinness, no matter what way you look at them. Well, just, just, just so just so I'll tell people briefly, Frank Hegarty, yeah. he was involved in Derry. He rose to assistant quartermaster, yes. which meant he knew everywhere the explosive was. Next thing, there was a find. He was blamed for it. He took off to England. Martin McGuinness, who had promoted him assiduously along the way, he assured Hegarty's mother that if he came back, there would be no problem. He came back, he was taken away soon after and shot dead. Yes. Now, there's two ways of looking at it. And when you, I, I think in fairness to you you, you, you suggest, some people suggest that the fact that McGuinness promoted him and he was an informer suggests that McGuinness may have known that and it may have suited his purpose. The alternative view is that McGuinness was so outraged having promoted the guy, he was determined that he was going to be but executed. But those two things aren't incompatible. Fair point, yeah. Right? Here's the crux, here's the crux for me. There's a couple of things. Number one, I spoke to a guy from uh, the FRU, the, the, the reaction, the, the British Army unit. The FRU, the yeah, Force Reaction Unit. Force Reaction yeah. Unit. A guy called Ian Hurst, who was adamant that McGuinness was an AMI 6 agent. And he says he was turned in 1972. There's a very dominant video was published last year of McGuinness uh, having put a bomb into a car and showing kids in dairy guns. And that dis- video dis- was made in 72 and disappeared until after his death. Now, I'm not saying that that's, that's, that, that can't be ignored. But that aside, the, Franco, the, thing that, the thing that I found very damning in the Franco Haggerty thing, I spoke to a guy... I spoke to the uh, quartermaster, the then quartermaster of Northern Command. He's an elderly guy. And he was outraged at McGuinness because McGuinness told him, I am sending you to the continent, right, to operate with the, the guys on the continent. 
and I'm giving Frank O'Haggerty your job. Now, this would have meant that Frank O'Haggerty would have been Quartermaster Northern Command. Quartermaster Northern Command is the guy who controls every gun yeah. in the Northern Command. He could literally say to every unit, bring all your guns, dig a big, big hole in the field, bring all your guns and put them into that field. It was a war-winning strategy because of what it does. the Quartermaster would have had the ability to disarm the IRA. Yeah. And to me... To me, that was that was very, very damning. Oh, yeah, I can see it, definitely. Um, and Scapatici himself, he escaped, and uh, you, you make the point, Ricky, and I've, I've seen it elsewhere, and it makes perfect sense, that if the IRA, even when he came under suspicion, were to subject him what he had subjected other informers to, the fallout within their own community could be so huge he was nearly too big to kill, so they let him off. But he suffered a kind of a purgatory in the subsequent years himself. He was taken out of his environment and mm. ultimately he died there a few years ago in, in England, but he uh, he was a completely a persona non grata. Well, the image that I have of, of uh, just before we go, again, I need the emphasis. I'm not saying that McGuinness was an informer. He could have been very incompetent and there's evidence of that as well. Right? Yeah. There's evidence of that as well. He he sort of sidelined a guy called John Crawley, the who wrote the book The Yank. I read it. Right? He was an absolute military expert. And he he was he was teaching special forces in America and and McGuinness made a great job of devaluing him. But that aside, which was total incompetence. You, you wouldn't do that, but he did it. So he could have been just and very incompetent and maybe didn't think things out. So I, that's, I'm giving them the benefit yeah. of that doubt. Yeah, yeah. The thing about Scapatici, and you're right, the image I have of Scapatici after he left, after he fled, he didn't flee until uh, Sylvia Jones, who was, uh, was a journalist, put an article, put, put on, on, on the internet a, a conversation that the Cook Report guys had yes. with, with Scapatici in the Culloden Hotel, where he where he where he uh, he put the knife in the McGuinness and, and named IRA volunteers who were involved in the English department, etc. And then he fled because everybody knew it was him. He had a very distinctive voice. And then he fled. And the image I have of him, uh, certainly in his later years, probably not in his earlier years, because he quite quite a bit of money. But certainly in this year, it was almost like Osama bin Laden, sitting with the blanket over his head and the remote in his hand, watching TV, and and and, and you know that sort of alone, yeah, you know, and and everything that he valued gone, yeah, you know, yeah, and it would it would in in light of all he did. I'm sorry, but it'd be very difficult to have any sympathy for him. Like, you know, I mean... He, no, I mean, be a very generous man. Yeah. Would give him a drink of water in a desert. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me, and you have a very interesting background yourself, Ricky, as people may not know, of course, you, you were the spokesperson for the prisoners in the H-blocks during the hunger strikes. Yeah. And subsequent to that, you wrote, I have to say, it's one of the best books on the North Blanket Men about your time there. But out of that came your claim, and there's been some evidence to back you up definitely since, that 
your belief that it was possible that six of the ten lives in that could have been saved if an offer that came in from the British, which the prisoners were willing to accept, that was vetoed by the hierarchy in the provisional movement. And how, in that context, are you regarded now by people in Sinn Féin? Um, I don't know. I don't really talk to people in Sinn Féin, and they certainly don't talk to me. I was ostracised. I've been ostracised basically ever since. Since that book came out? Since that book. That was 2005. I, um, 2005. And I've been ostracised by friends, guys who were great friends of mine, some guys, at least one guy who was a, a former cellmate of mine on the blanket, at least one, I think two. But anyway, I, I've been ostracised and um, I don't really care. Doesn't annoy me one way or the other. At the end of the day, I will write what I think is right. And I will write it I will rate it from a point of view of not propaganda, not not what somebody wants me to rate or what will make ingratiate me to a section of people. I will rate what I find to be factual, and that's that's my position on, 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 on everything. And I also saw somewhere recently, and I hope I'm quoting you correctly. I think it was at, at some gathering where you suggested that you now believe that quite possibly the SDLP rather than Sinn Féin, had the right idea all along in terms of how to bring about a united Ireland. In other words, that the armed struggle, as it's called, was not worth it. Well, it wasn't worth it. Uh, it, it wasn't worth it. Demonstrably so. We still live in the United Kingdom. We're not in a united Ireland. So therefore, and the purpose of the armed struggle was to get the British out of Ireland, and it didn't work. So it failed. And I will never exalt failure. And the fact of the matter that the armed struggle failed means that all those who died as a result, during it died fruitlessly. In my view, there was no, there was no positive... Well, I'll tell you in a minute what the only positive thing that I've seen coming out of it. But there was no tangible benefit in terms of the constitutional position, right, of the six counties. So therefore, it was a waste of life. As 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 Brendan Q said, the Doggy Q said, it wasn't worth getting out of, uh, it wasn't worth, he was on the hunger strike, and Dolores Price said the same thing, it wasn't worth missing the bar- a breakfast for. And I, I think that's a very viable position, and I think it's a position that is very difficult to argue with. John Hume, for example, has been had been saying all along, guys, this won't work. Right? I'm paraphrasing him. But that's what he was saying. It won't work. And I just think that um I think he was right. And I think I think history has shown that he was right. I'm not an SDLP. I'm not a member of the SDLP. I'm a member of no political party. I'm on a committee. Uh but they call it a uh a constitutional sort of committee that the SDLP have put together. It's multi. It's, it's multinational. There are people from the Northern Ireland former Northern Ireland office on it. There are Protestant ministers. There are Catholic ministers. There are people from Fine Gael on it. Fine Foyle, uh, all over the place, right? And I and they asked me to go on it, right? To sort of give a a, a Republican perspective, and I see no reason why not. 
And that's my involvement. And what do you say then, Ricky, to the official line from Sinn Féin stroke provisional IRA that the 25 years of violence was necessary to get to a point where the political project could be advanced as they subsequently advanced. What do you say? Because that is the, the line, and it's repeated time and again, that that is the line, that it had to be done, they had to go through, that the North had to go through that. That is the line that's put out there. And you, you as somebody who was involved from a young age, you spent, yeah. uh, was it eight years in, 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 uh, in Lankesh? Uh, yes, eight years. And, 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 and you know, you, you, you paid a heavy price. Um, what do you say to that now, that line? That I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure of that at all. I'm not sure that a united Republican movement before the split with the officials and the provost wouldn't have achieved the same end a lot sooner than the Good Friday Agreement. Don't forget, we had Sunningdale in 1974 where there was exactly a, a, a possibly a better deal for nationalists than the Good Friday Agreement. And the the, 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 the IRA uh, opposed it because it was short of United Ireland. It was an internal settlement. We were never for an internal settlement. We wanted we wanted Ireland free of British rule. So it didn't work for us. That it did work eventually. That it, that there was Republicans uh, who who came to the conclusions, SDLP conclusions, when you really think about it, that. Armed struggle was not the way forward. That constitutional politics was the way forward, uh, and that's where it ended up. It is. It's. It's. It's a sobering reflection when you think of it. When you when you consider all that was lost, all that was destroyed, all the people who died, all and, those lives. Yeah, and 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 even your own role in terms of, in the H blocks, and you quite you 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 would have known a lot of the men who died. And, yeah, yeah, and, I, and yeah. it's an awful thing to say, but. On one level, you'd wonder, what did they die for? Well, that's true. Well, the guys in the H-blocks, if you said to me, what did they die for? I can tell you exactly what they believed they died for. They died, they believed they were down for a 32-county socialist republic. And they also believed that they were down to bring about conditions for their own, better conditions for their for their own comrades. So, and most IRA volunteers would adhere to the first part of that. They were down for a 32-county socialist republic. But that didn't happen, right? So, so it, it begs the question, um, was it worth it? And if you say yes, I'd love to know what your answer is, or what your rationale behind it is. Yeah. Um, do you think you'll see a 32-county Ireland in your lifetime, yeah, Rick? I do. Yeah, you do? I do, uh, I think it's going that way. I think that... Um, I think that the political the political sort of maelstrom is going that way. The UK is falling apart. That's the bottom line. I mean, the the doctors are right. The the real workers are right. That the whole the whole the whole of society in the UK is falling apart. Uh, the standard of living is dropping virtually daily. People are struggling. The uh, NHS is, is, a, is a joke, and people are looking at that, and they're looking at they're looking at the republic, right? And these the guys down here are putting eight and ten billion away every financial quarter. And the, 
mean to tell her what you'd say. Fuck, I want, pardon me for caution, I want a bit of that. Yeah, yeah. The problem that you have is is that loyalism and unionism, um, that's a huge leap for them, right? And, and psychologically and intellectually, I'm not so sure they're capable of taking it, even though a titter of wit would say it's the right thing to do for our kids. Very much so. Um, yeah, Ricky, as I said, I have to say your book, Blanket Men, I thought is anybody who wants to understand anything about the North is, is a must read. And also this book, Steak Knife, and his role in the Dirty War. Um, I think people should get a hold of it because it is a fascinating insight. And if I may say, it's it looks at it on a very human level. And sometimes between statistics, between politics and all, we forget that ultimately what you were talking about here were human beings, and I think that comes across in this book. Ricky Ora, thanks very much. Mick, thank it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. The full title of the book is Steak Knife's Dirty War, the inside story of Scapatici, the IRA's nutting squad, and the British spooks who ran the war. And, as I say, it's written by Richard Ora. That's it for this week, folks. Thanks as always to our engineer. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk again soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.